This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library. Welcome to the library. Thanks for coming. Uh, today's event is part of our Malcolm X uh, One Book, One College series of events. Um, one of the themes that we've pulled out of the book Malcolm X is uh, just the discussion of African-American culture. And we've, we've t- uh, had some discussions about civil rights. Uh, we've talked about Malcolm X's life. And today we wanted to take kind of a unique angle on this theme. And uh, we've invited some of our um, African-American faculty members and administrators to join us to talk about their stories. And uh, Leonard, who's a sociologist, um, will probably tell us how um, important stories are that when things happen, we tell ourselves stories. Stories help us interpret events, interpret our place in the world. And um, it's, uh, it's a basic idea that we don't do very often to just say, what's your story? So I'm excited today to welcome um, this group of, of men to uh, share their stories. Uh, first, I want to do some introductions. Um, on the end, as I mentioned, is Leonard Wynn, who's um, in sociology. Uh, to his left is Courtney Reese, who's in developmental ed. Uh, to his left is our moderator, Delwyn Jones. Um, He's in speech, and to his left is Dana Campbell, Department Chair of Earth Sciences, Physical Sciences, and he teaches chemistry. To his left is uh, Dr. Vernon Crawley, the President of Moraine Valley. We're very um, honored to have him as part of our panel. And to his left is uh, Mario Bora, who teaches in mathematics, and he's our our baby on the panel. So (laughs) So I want to welcome all of you, and I'll turn it over to Delwyn to get us started. Thank you. Good afternoon. How's everyone doing? Um, I think we have a unique um, opportunity to uh, hear the perspectives of African-American men on this campus. Um, You'll find out, I believe, that uh, although we're African-American men, that we have different experiences, different backgrounds, and different ways that we have come uh, to the point that we are today. And hopefully, uh, you get a chance to get an idea of our individual stories and things that we have gone through. Um, I did a, a talk with, about Malcolm X about uh, three or four weeks ago, and we talked about his different uh, approach to life, and I compared him to Martin Luther King, and there were two different stories, uh, two African-American men who had some of the same desires and hopes uh, for our society, but yet they had two different ways of looking at life. And I think maybe today you're going to see that uh, although we have some of the same experiences, that they are different. So we're going to get started, and I'm going to ask a few questions of our panel to see if we can dig deep into these souls and uh, find out uh, some information maybe we can all learn uh, today. The first question I want to ask is, what career steps have you taken to land the position you currently hold? Um, I would like to go to our esteemed leader, uh, the honorable and respected Dr. Vernon Crawley. And uh, <laughs> Dr. Crawley, maybe you can give us an idea of um, what steps you took to uh, get into the position that you're in today. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm pleased to be here this afternoon to share some thoughts and insights about my uh, roadway to Moraine Valley. As I told uh, the group, uh, I probably could sit here and talk the next hour about it, uh, so uh, I'll have to pick and choose as I go through some of this uh, uh, to get to be sure that I tell you the uh, highlights of it at least. I want you to know that the pathway has not been easy. It has not been a bed of roses. 
Rather, it has been full of challenges and rough times along the way. And I'm going to start right out when I was a child and tell you how I got where I got uh, in all of this. I grew up in a family of 12 outside of Richmond, Virginia, a small rural farm town. So I was one of 12. My mother and father had never been to, had never finished school, not even elementary school. Um, only my brother and I finished high school, and I was the only one in the family who went to college. <clears throat> it was a large family, low income. We were poor, and we knew we were poor. There was no question about that. We knew that. Well, it was tough times. It was hard times. It was difficult times. High school being the same way. I grew up when there was the separation of, of schools. The African Americans were in one school. The others were in the other. I had to go to the African American high school. There was no African American high school. It was a barn that I went to school in. It was mainly six classrooms and that was it. That was my high school. And there was no 12th grade in high school. Never a 12th grade for us. Uh, I went to high school. Um, I finished high school. And the highest math that I have ever had in high school was college algebra. Uh, not college, a second year algebra. That's all that I had. In, in the area of chemistry, and I want to mention that because I happened to have majored in chemistry when I went to college, the only thing that we had in the high school for chemistry was a classroom with textbooks that we used to re read from the textbooks. There was no lab, no nothing to go along with any of that. As a matter of fact, there was no physics classes or anything like that as well. So my high school education was one in which I finished high school, but certainly I wasn't well educated at all with this. Well, how in the world did I get to go to college, you know, in the sense of this? When I finished high school, I did go to college, and I'll tell you right up front, I majored in chemistry and minored in mathematics, and I just told you what I had. Um, well, it really was a mentor or mentors that I had in high school, high school teachers who really influenced me to do that. And I remember that one thing that really encouraged me to go on was that somehow they maneuvered to get me a scholarship because that was the only way that I would ever be able to get to college. Well, I went off to college. I had to work my way through college. And when I arrived at college, I soon found out that I was not well prepared for college. And I told you my background in all of this. Well, the thing that really helped me through all of this was the fact that I majored in chemistry and the chair of that department kind of took me under his wing. And his wife happened to have been working at the college as well, and she was teaching in the English department. And the two of them kind of took me under the wing. And that's really the way that I made it through college. So really, I think, you know, in a lot of ways, it's the, it's the collaborations, it's the partnerships, it's the people that you get to meet, you know, in order to make some of this stuff happen. 
Well, I, I really was what we know today as a community college student. I wasn't well prepared for what I was going to go into, but it didn't deter me at all. I guess I had the motivation to move on, and I wanted to move on, and I certainly didn't want to do what my brothers had done, my brothers and sisters, in a sense of all of this. So I moved on, I, and uh, I, ladies and gentlemen, I finished college in four years. I got out of college with a bachelor's degree in chemistry in four years. Now, my motivation for going into chemistry was that I wanted to be a medical doctor. That was my real goal. Well, you can see that I never reached that goal at that particular time. But let me tell you what. Growing up in Virginia during that particular time was, was very difficult, I'll tell you. You know, it was really difficult. Well, during that time, the only place that an African-American could go to medical school was either to go to, uh, to accept monies and go to one of the out-of-state you know, out schools, or to go to Maharia Howard at that time, and certainly I did not have the money to do either of those two things uh, with all of that. So I turned to private industry when I came out of college, um, and guess what? The first rejection letter I got was from a company that, if I would call the name of it today, you would know it, who told me that they did not hire African Americans. Hmm. And that was the first thing that I encountered graduating from college. Well, I didn't let that deter me, and I don't think people ought to. You know, you've got to have some motivation. You've got to have that drive about yourself to overcome some of those uh, challenges that you're faced. So I, uh, I continued to apply for jobs, and I ended up in private industry working as a chemist, uh, in Richmond, Virginia, and soon found out that that was not where I wanted to be because being in that one lab was not where I really felt I wanted to be. I had more people skills and liked people and wanted to be with people, you know, in the sense of all of that. So uh, I went into high school teaching for three years, but that certainly wasn't where I wanted to be either. So after three years, I went back to graduate school, and, and here it goes again. I went to the College of William and Mary to work on my master's, and I was one of the few early students who stayed on campus at the College of William and Mary after it became integrated. So I was one of those early students on campus. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that was a real challenge. Uh, you, I, I did well academically at the College of William and Mary, and I always did in school. But the isolation, people would talk to you in class, and once you would come out of class, you had no one to talk to, no one to eat lunch with, no one to eat dinner with. You know, you were by yourself. It was a world of isolation. And that's what, what I encountered there. Well, not feeling very good about that, I switched to the University of Virginia uh, to complete my master's, which I did. Um, well, the University of, of um, Virginia and the College of William and Mary is not that far apart, maybe 100 miles uh, in between the two of them. So I went to the University of Virginia hoping to find a different atmosphere, a different, you know, whatever I needed in order to get through school. Well, I did finish the uh, University of Virginia, but not that I didn't have problems there as well. Let me tell you one. 
you know, my first year at the University of Virginia, I took a chemistry course, and uh, and and I did very well in the chemistry course. But when it was time for grades to be awarded, I got a B, and the rest of the people got A's. So that burned me quite a bit, as you can understand, you know, with all of this. And I, I, I did not let it pass. I, I, I decided I had to do something about it. I, I went to the department. I did those kinds of things that I had to do about all of this. But um, after that, my, my, my year and a half at the University of Virginia after that was fine. Things seemed to have worked out. Um, uh, things went very well for me from that. And from that, ladies and gentlemen, I... Uh, I went to uh, uh, Morgan State University after completing, incidentally, I had a tenure at the American University as well in all of this. And after that, I went to uh, Morgan State University to work as a, chemi as a chemist on the faculty there at the university. Well, after being there for three years, I soon found out that if I wanted to stay at Morgan State University, I needed my doctorate. And that's how I got to go to Penn State, because I was coming back to Morgan State University to uh, teach full-time in the chemistry department. Well, I never made that transition back to Morgan State University. I went on to Penn State. I earned my doctorate. Things worked out very well uh, from that point on. And I, uh, the day uh, that I finished my work for my doctorate was in the summer of 1971. I got a mysterious call on the telephone from some guy who asked me if I would like to join him and nine other individuals to start a community college in Baltimore County, Maryland. To really start, go and start a college. I didn't know what a community college was. I had no idea what a community college was. Uh, but after much conversation, I decided to give up my spot at Morgan State University, and I went with these nine guys to start this community college in Baltimore County, Maryland. Uh, and uh, it was real interesting. We started off in the basement of a church. The first year, we had 69 people. And after that, uh, we got together and we built the college that is now in Baltimore County, Maryland, right now. I have done it. I did everything at that college, from sweeping the floors to knocking on doors to, you name it, I did it because it was only nine of us that were there at that particular time. Uh, so my experiences run deep in the community colleges. So that was my first experience with all of that. But now, how in the world did I get from there to be the college president? Well, it has never dawned on me yet that I wanted to be a college president. It never dawned on me with any of this. Well, after several years at this particular college, I left and went to New Jersey to work. And I went to New Jersey as an academic dean. And it, uh, it was during that tenure that really it began to dawn on me that probably that's where I wanted to go. Uh, I had served as an academic dean at this college in New Jersey. And then one morning, I got a call bright and early from the president of the college who asked me, he said, I really need for you to go down to our other campus
because overnight the person who is responsible for that campus was fired and we need someone there I didn't know what I was getting into or anything like this but the experiences that you get you know sometimes uh, they come quickly and and sometimes they're real difficult but when I arrived at the campus the next morning the guy was still there so here two of us are down there buying for the pre uh, for the office of the chief executive so you run into confrontations and you know all of those kinds of things along the way and so forth and then after that and then after that um, experience there I stayed there another two years or so I moved to St. Louis and I moved to St. Louis now ladies and gentlemen as the president of St. Louis Community College and that was the first inkling from that dean spot that I had ever thought about of being a college president because that wasn't on my memory anywhere, you know, that I wanted to be a college president. Remember now, I wanted to be that doctor, and that was always ingrained in my head. But I ended up going to St. Louis then as the president of St. Louis Community College. And, you know, going there has been, was a real challenge, too. Let me tell you just a couple of challenges, you know, you meet along the way, you know, and I could tell you many of them that I met there. But let me tell you this one. <clears throat> I went to St. Louis Community College, <clears throat> excuse me, in July of 1978. And when I walked into St. Louis Community College, I knew that they were on the verge of having their accreditation visit that fall. But nowhere did I have any inkling that the enrollment at that institution would drop nearly 3,000 students that fall. Well, what, what in the world do you do if enrollment at a single college is going to drop 3,000? Well, it was during those early days when a lot of the financial aid and some of that was being cleaned up and, you know, those kinds of things. That's really the reason with all of this. Well, I ended up that semester, my very first semester at St. Louis Community College for some of the faculty members who are here, that we had a department there, and I'll tell you, the English department, that we could not find load for eight full-time faculty members. Even after... We took everything that they had and gave them loads, and we still had eight people who we couldn't find loads for. It was those kinds of difficult situations that you get encountered um, along the way. But I survived all of that. I stayed in St. Louis for 13 years. And, and then in uh, 1991, mysteriously, I get a call from the consultant who was looking at Moraine Valley and asked me if I might be interested in that and I said to the consultant no I'm not I'm very happy here where I am and I'm going to stay here and the consultant came back again and said would you just think about it and I said I have thought about it and I'm finished with it <laughs> and then she said to me could I just let your resume be put in could they just see it I said I don't care who sees my resume that's fine you know kind of thing and uh, then she called me back again and said the committee looked at this and the, some other people at the college had looked at would you would you just come and just talk to them you don't have to accept the job <laughs> 
Well, I was hesitant about that. And I said, if I get into that, I probably, you know, have, would have gone too far, you know, with this. And I decided to come. Well, after talking to, uh, to, to the consultant, and I came here for the first interview, and, and then uh, I, I say to the consultant, you know, I didn't even get to the campus. I didn't even know how the campus looked. The, the interviews were held in a hotel at the O'Hare Airport during that time. So I didn't even know how, know how the campus looked. Then she used that for the next part of it. She said, you've got to come and see the campus, you know. <laughs> so she said, won't you bring your wife along, you know. So we made the visit, and my wife came along, and we visited the campus. And um, after visiting the campus, what they did, that for, uh, I interviewed with some of them, but at the same time, they had like a reception or something, which I had never thought that would come off, and somehow talking to the individuals that I met that day and those kinds of things influenced me that I ought to at least look at all of this. And after doing all of that, yes, here I am. I've been at Marine Valley for 17 years, and that was my path to getting here. And I could tell you a lot more about a lot of these kinds. But I know other guys have to speak, so I'll stop there. All right. Thank you, Dr. Crowley. I appreciate that unique experience that you went through. And uh, I was going to make some comments. I'm going to get the other panel members. Maybe we'll go with uh, Mr. Leonard Wynn um, over to my far right. And uh, the question, again, just to make sure that you uh, remember that, is what career steps have you taken to land the position you currently hold? Okay. Um, <clears throat> first of all, I think similar to what uh, Dr. Crowley has mentioned, um, Family was really, really huge for me in terms of setting that kind of. There we go. Can you hear me now? Okay. Uh, I am the youngest of eight kids. Uh, very strong matriarch of a mother. Uh, she was very determined to have a doctor in the family, and so um, during that time when um, I was going to elementary school and later on to uh, junior high. Uh, my mom fought to get me into schools that was about 12, 13 years before legalized busing. And it was really tough being uh, the only person of color in a lot of schools, uh, particularly um, you know, trying to socialize, that type of thing, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, after a certain period of time, um, as a kid, uh, you sometimes don't realize that you become just a little culturally disconnected in the sense that uh, one of the things that uh, my friends in, in my neighborhood noticed was the fact that uh, now my speech has changed. Uh, I'm not speaking in a strong black English vernacular. And in that, in that period of time where, you know, people were polarized and, you know, white versus black, that type of thing, it was either all or none. You're either with us or you're not. And it was really, really tough. Uh, that is there as well as coming back home. Um, but, uh, again, again, having a very strong mother who made sure that I was going to do well, and I, and I mean that <laughs> wholeheartedly, um, I wound up uh, entering into the military, and that kind of broke my mom's heart because uh, a month after I raised my hand for the second time, I got a full ride scholarship, and, which I could not accept. 
but if I had to do it all over again, I would still go right back to the military because I think that type of thing in the military really helped me in terms of this thing called tolerance. Uh, made me stronger, made me a lot more patient. A lot of the things that my parents had tried to tell me in terms of, you know, kind of, you know, thicken your skin a little bit, stay focused, that type of thing, really, really create this, this discipline for me. Um, and after getting out of the military, uh, having, not having used my brain in about five years, um, I went to college <laughs> and I wasn't sure where I was, gonna, where I was at. So I, I went in Ohio. Community colleges aren't as big as they are in, in Illinois. They're attached to the colleges. And so uh, I went to what they call university college, where I took my high school math, high school English, kind of get caught up. Um, and so to make a long story short, I uh, went through several majors. I tried the, the biology thing. I really did. And then the, uh, you know, tried to uh, go ahead and, and pass the NCAT to go to, uh, to med school. Uh, but again, that, that didn't work out too well. But, um, but one of the things that, that really, really did impact me as I was going through this, uh, this trail to, let's say, Moraine Valley is that um, I was always pretty good in mathematics. And um, someone said, uh, you'd be a good social worker because, you know, they said, Lynn has a good heart. Um, and went from social work, I got the degree, and then I figured, well, you know, I want to learn more about how people, groups of people think in terms of this, these issues of race or the so socialization, these types of things, et cetera, et cetera. So I went into sociology. Uh, I had some uh, really good mentors in sociology that, you know, mentioned that I should continue on on the graduate level um, and um, did my, my master's degree at Bowling Green State University. Uh, unfortunately, it was one of those places where I kind of got reintroduced into those challenges of higher education in terms of uh, educational attainment. Um, uh, the, the program was a really, really good program, but I just felt like it created challenges that were more like barriers in terms of me continuing on in the Ph.D. program. Uh, but I didn't let, that, didn't let that stop me because I had some other individuals in my life who, were, who told me, you know, stay with that, stay with that. Um, and I wound up getting a, a doctoral fellowship at Loyola University, and that worked out really, really well. And to make a long story short, um, I took a, a one-year hiatus from my uh, coursework at Loyola, and I was working as a senior researcher at uh, University of Illinois Chicago uh, at their National Research and Training Center. And I had applied for the job here at Moraine Valley, but I didn't think they were going to hire me. Uh, one of the reasons why I didn't think they were going to hire me is because they certainly couldn't match my salary at, at UIC. And it was sort of this thing like, how can I convince them that I, I, I'm really passionate about teaching and that it's not necessarily about, about the money? And when I got here, I didn't see very many people of color, particularly uh, African-American males when it comes to faculty. Even though I had dealt with, you know, with that, those types of challenges before, I was really concerned, I was really concerned. Uh, one of the individuals that I, I first saw was Delwyn, <laughs> and I knew Delwyn had been teaching here part time, and so we we talked a lot, we talked a lot, you know, especially uh, once I got hired. But uh, it's just during that during that period of time, I, I ran into these these sort of issues that oh well, he's here for affirmative action, and sometimes that could really really affect an individual when people don't assume that this person has actually earned. 
the right to be here in terms of the, the qualifications, that type of thing, et cetera, et cetera. But um, again, Dell and I, we got tenured, and, and the rest is history. All right. Okay, we're going to move on, and uh, maybe we'll get uh, Mario uh, to give a little bit, give us an idea of his background. And the question again is, what career steps have you taken to land the position you currently hold? Wow, these are uh, two really tough acts to follow. Um, <clears throat> career steps to land as a teacher here at Marine Valley. In all honesty, I don't really think this was me. When I was, the family that I come from, I come from a very strong Nigerian Catholic family. So there were two things that were stressed when I was growing up. Church, we were in church pretty much every single day of the week. Somehow we found a way to be in that church. And school, from the age of say two, I was reading. I was being schooled by my parents who were both teachers. So school and church have always been the main like, forces that drove me as I went through my life. So I went to uh, my church grade school, and if I wasn't in school during the day, I was at church at night, and so I pretty much lived on the school campus. Uh, as I was going through school at uh, St. Columbanus, that was my school, uh, a lot of my teachers would actually give me more work because rather than socialize with my friends or talk to like the other students, I was always talking to them. I wanted to know more about like you know the subjects. So in uh, mathematics class, we were doing, say, for example, basic addition facts was 5 plus 5. Well, I was a student who said, well, what happens if you have 15 plus 5? What happens if you add more numbers? Or in religion class, I was a student who said, well, what gives you the right to say that? And so I've always been very inquisitive. So because of that, my teachers decided that rather than deal with me, they just pushed me along. So I was actually, I actually skipped a few grades in grade school because my teachers I just like to see that they just got tired of me, so they just moved me ahead. So I went through grade school. Um, I did all, I went through from K through eighth grade, only I did it in six years rather than the eight it takes. So then I moved on to, I was making the decision to go to high school. Well, the problem was if I tried to go to a quote unquote normal high school, here I am significantly younger than the other high school students. There was no way I was going to be able to relate to anybody. I, my parents were scared I was going to get bullied, I was going to get beaten up, and so on and so forth. And so this is where the church came in. Like I said, from a young age, it always came back to church and school. And so the best place for me to go then was a combination of both, the seminary. So when I was applying to high school, my parents pretty much filled out the application for me, but I applied to Archbishop Quigley Preparatory Seminary. And so this was the Archdiocese of Chicago, the Catholic Church's high school seminary. And that's where I went. And so I walked in, and I will never forget when I walked into the school, I am surrounded by these giants around me. Because when I, was, uh, when I walked in as a freshman, I was roughly this tall. And I realized that I'm sitting down, but I still was this tall. <laughs> so I walked in, and everyone was taller than me, and I didn't talk to anybody freshman year. I literally knew no one's name. I just went to my classes, talked to my teachers, and went home. And then sophomore year, I don't know if this was just me like adapting or survival or what, but I swear I probably grew about a foot and a half 
between freshman year and, and sophomore year. So all of a sudden, now I remember walking in sophomore year, and I'm looking down on people. It was really exciting. So I walked in, and this is when I actually started to open up. I started to talk to people. I started to make friends and so on and so forth. And it was really easy at Quigley because my class, even when it was big, was 75 students. By the time I was a senior at Archbishop Quigley, my class had dropped down to 42 students, and the school was a full 200 students big. So when I graduated from Archbishop Quigley, I knew every single person's name in the entire school. I knew all the faculty. I knew all the secretaries. I knew the lunch. I knew everybody. This is, this is kind of the um, joy of going to a small school. So I come to senior year, and um, I did pretty well in school, and I was applying to schools. Well, you know how they sit you down and they say, okay, what schools are you going to apply to? Well, in, you know, again, the normal high school, you are thinking, okay, well, I like math, so I'll go, be a, I'll go to a math school, or I'll be a math major, sociology major, chemistry, and so on. Well, in the seminary, it's you are in the high school seminary. Obviously, the next transition is college seminary. So the application process is really easy. You don't apply to multiple schools. You apply to the college seminary. So I went from the high school seminary at Archbishop Quigley to the college seminary, St. Joseph College Seminary at Loyola University. And the way the college seminary is designed here in Chicago is you live on in the small building at the very edge of campus at Loyola University on the Lakeshore campus. You take all of your theology and your philosophy classes at the seminary. So you are a theology and philosophy major. And then if you have time, you maybe take you know, other classes at Loyola. Well, I walked into St. Joe's, and like I said, school and church. I had the church thing down. I was in seminary, but I wanted to kind of expand on the school. So I decided that I wanted to take English classes, because I really liked English when I was in high school. And so I had to actually petition my uh, dean at St. Joseph's to allow me to take English classes at Loyola so that I could perhaps do an English major. So this time I'm a triple major, theology, philosophy, and English. I walked into my first English class. I sat down. The teacher showed us the syllabus. She told us about the papers we were going to be writing. She told us about all the reading we were going to be doing. And then after class, I promptly got up, walked out, and never walked in again. <laughs> because I just could not handle it. Theology, philosophy, and English, it was just not going to happen. So then I decided that, you know what, I had always been really, really good at dead languages, Latin and Greek. That was my thing. So then I became a Latin and Greek major, so classics. So at this point, I have four majors now, theology, philosophy, because those were assumed, you had to do that, and then these two actually Latin and Greek, which kind of went together. Walked into my Latin class, really, really liked it. I was a Latin and Greek major for about a semester, but then I realized I'm doing Latin and Greek, and if this is fun, again, all the reading, the writing, papers, and all this, I, I don't want to do this. Why am I doing this to myself? So I dropped out of the Latin and the Greek, didn't do that anymore, and I just kept the theology and philosophy. Then one of my high school teachers actually called me up and said, are you taking math classes at Loyola? I said, no, I'm not taking math classes because math classes would be hard. and I don't want to do this to myself. But he said, I want you to do me a favor, just try out a math class. Go to Loyola, take Calculus 2. Why not? You had Calculus 1 with me. You have all the prerequisites. Just take the class. So my, uh, I guess it would be my second semester of my freshman year at St. Joe's, I took a Calculus class, and I loved it. Loved calculus, loved everything about it, loved asking questions, loved doing it, everything. So I became a math major. Now, 
at this point, if you're keeping track now, I've gone through about six majors. And I'm still this theology and philosophy, but now I have math attached. In the seminary, in the high school seminary, you are allowed to, if you have time, like I said, take other majors. But the thought process was always, you're doing this major because it will help the church somehow. English makes sense because as a priest, you can go and either teach in the high school seminary or you can uh, be writing homilies, things of that nature. English makes sense. Latin and Greek, you're studying the Bible, so it makes sense to be these majors. Mathematics? Yeah. How does that affect the church? How does that actually help the church? So I actually had to petition my school to let me be a math major. I had to write a document saying that this is how I was going to use it in the archdiocese, that this is how I was going to serve the church with my math major. Well, the problem that I encountered was as I was presenting this to this committee, it was actually a committee with my rector, the academic dean, and a couple faculty members, they, one of the faculty members actually looked at me point blank and said, when you get ordained, so when you become a priest, you're not going to be in a school you're not going to be, say, you know, in uh, one of the other churches. You're going to be in an African-American church because that's where African-American seminarians go. And this faculty member looked me right in the eye and told me this, saw nothing wrong with that. Now, I looked at this faculty member and I said, as a priest, I go where this church sends me. That's true. So if I'm sent to an African-American parish, then I will do that. But then I said, well, that African-American parish, they'll probably have a school. So just because I am going to be working in this African-American parish doesn't mean I can't use my math major. And then I said, well, what means I'm going to be going to an African-American church? How come I won't go, say, to a Polish church or to a Hispanic church because I study Spanish? Or why not go to, I don't know, a Korean church? There are all kinds of churches in the Archdiocese. Just because I am an African-American does not mean I'm going to an African-American church. The reason why I told this story is because this is what I've gone through as I've come to say here at Moraine. Subtly, people in the church will say things like, well, you're African-American, you're going to an African-American church. Or, you're an African-American because you're going to this church, why do you need to be a math major? When I was going through my schooling, I dropped the philosophy major because three majors was just too much for me. I couldn't handle it. I then had to explain why I was dropping philosophy. Some of my classmates told me, is it because you think that you're black that you can change the rules like this, that you can do whatever you want? I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, this was like racism. I'm not saying that this was, you know, I think this is more just ignorance. They thought that, you know, why should I have special treatment? And I told them, well, you are doing one and a half majors because the theology became a minor and you're doing philosophy. I'm doing three majors right now. As much as I would like to keep this, I want to drop down to theology, mathematics, and a minor in philosophy just so I can actually handle everything. I then dropped the theology to a minor as well because Loyola actually approached me and asked me to do a master's in mathematics. They were restarting their bachelor of science, bachelor of science master of science program, and they asked me if I would be willing to keep the bachelor's in mathematics, but while I was actually working on the undergraduate degree, also work on the graduate degree. Well, again, the seminary said, well, you know, this is a four-year program. You have four years at St. Joe's, then you move on to the major seminary, five years later you become a priest. We are not going to give you a fifth year here. So you are not going to be allowed to take a fifth year to finish this master's. We're not saying you can't do the master's degree. I mean, feel free, by all means, but you have to do it in four years. So, 
I looked at my academic dean, I said, okay, done. I will finish this degree, both of them, with the minor in theology, with the minor in philosophy, in four years. So that means I have to take 24 credit hours a semester, which I actually had a 24 credit hour semester, I did. I had 24, 21, 21, 18, but I finished it. And I finished my master's degree, finished my bachelor's degree, and I got my minor in theology, minor in philosophy. In all honesty, I did not get a degree in math because I was thinking of teaching. I did not get a degree in math because I was thinking I was going to come here. I got a degree in math because I liked math. It's what I wanted to do. And I didn't want someone telling me I couldn't do it. But in the back of my mind, it was still, you're going to the seminary, and so you're going to go to the major seminary, finish up the program, and then become ordained. Well, I went to the major seminary, and when I went to Mundelein, I was surrounded by not only people from Chicago who were studying to be priests, but people from all over the United States. I was also surrounded by people who had, and I quote, never seen a black person before. And so I got questions like, is it true that you liked fried chicken? <laughs> is it true that you did this? Is it true that you did this? And this, again, was not racism. It was just they didn't know. They had never seen an African American before. And because of that, I found myself at Mundelein, seeing as I was, I should probably mention this, the only African American in the entire campus out of, say, 400 students, I found that I became the spokesperson for African-American culture. Every question they had about everything African-Americans did, I had to answer. Honestly, I don't feel any one person should have to be in a role like that. I mean, African-American culture is more than just me or Delwyn or Leonard. I mean, this, it's a whole, there's a reason why it's called a culture. I mean, there's a whole group of people. So, um, long story short, I was cast into this role. I then decided that I wanted to take some time away from the seminary because I wasn't quite ready to make that commitment. I was not ready to give a lifetime of celibacy and service to church yet. I wanted to do some other things. And so I left the seminary, and the question that a lot of high school students ask themselves when they're getting ready to go to college, what do I want to do when I grow up? Well, that's what I was asking myself after the seminary. Because I had come from 10 years of seminary training, I'm going to be a priest, to here I am in the quote-unquote outside world, and I have absolutely no idea what I want to do. I come out armed with a bachelor's degree in mathematics, a master's degree in mathematics, but I didn't have any education classes. So while I really wanted to teach high school, I couldn't because I didn't have an education degree. So I then went and applied to the Cooking and Hospitality Institute of Chicago. And that was the first job that I applied to, and I applied to be a math teacher. Part of me actually applied to that school just so I could tell people, I work at the cooking school. Are you a chef? No, I teach math. <laughs> and so I was hired at the Cooking and Hospitality Institute of Chicago to redo their math program and to teach math full-time there. So I was there for about six months, roughly, and I was looking online because I wasn't quite making a lot of money at the cooking school, and the administration wasn't the best, so I decided I was going to apply to different schools. So I went on to monster.com, typed in educator, and a whole bunch of schools came up, and I just threw my resume. Every time it said upload resume, I just put it on there. And so I applied probably to about maybe 10 schools for adjunct positions, so part-time and full-time, and I actually got a call back from Moraine. They said they wanted to do a phone interview with me. Well, <laughs> Moraine was one of the 10 or so schools I applied to. I actually had to go back to the website to see what school this was. So I went, went to, um, got my phone interview, 
All the while keeping in mind, I've worked at a cooking school for six months. Before that six months, I spent 10 years in the seminary. I have no experience. So this is a really good chance for me just to see what the process is to applying to full-time schools so that when I'm actually going to apply for real, I'll get a school. So I got the phone interview, went through the phone interview, and said, okay, that wasn't bad, it was okay. And then I got a call that they wanted me to come in for a teaching demonstration. This is the third part of the process to become a full-time faculty member. Well, at this point, I'm thinking, okay, this is perfect. This is, again, really good practice. I can go in for the teaching demo, and it'll be awesome. I can go in and be good for my resume that I apply to the school. I say this because I wasn't actually planning on getting the job because, again, six months at cooking school, ten years as a seminarian. So I go in for my teaching demonstration, and I walk into the room, and with the teaching demonstrations here in the math department, the people in the math department are encouraged to come out and kind of act as like the classroom for the person who's applying. Usually one or two people come out with the search committee. Well, I walk into the classroom and the entire math department is sitting there. And so I have to present a calculus question and I also have to present uh, a math for elementary education question. Well, I'm presenting my calculus question, I have my notes, and I'm writing on the board, and it's going really well. And then, you know, just to be nice, because I figured, you know, this is like a classroom, I ask, are there any questions? Well, one of the faculty members raises her hand and asks me a question. I was so surprised that someone asked me a question, I forgot the answer. <laughs> so I just sat there, um, uh... That's a really good question. That shows a lot of intelligence. And so I'm just kind of like kind of spacing it out so I can remember the answer again. So I get my interview with uh, the search committee. I see them. I then go up to see the VP, and then I do that and the whole thing. And the entire time I'm thinking, there's no way I'm getting this job. I just messed up my teaching demo. I have no idea what I'm doing, whatever. And so I then get a call from my dean saying that I got the job. It was at that point that I realized, oh my God, I actually have a full-time job now. Where did this come from? <laughs> so that's where I am now. So here I am at Moraine, but I will remember that as I walked onto campus for the first time, and as I was walking around, I was meeting the math department, I was meeting like, you know, science and business and all that. I was walking around and I was thinking to myself, where are all the African-American faculty members? I mean, I look around, and, you know, I see Delwyn here and there, and so I say hi to him. I think I saw you, Dana, so I said hi to you. I was really happy to see Dr. Crawley, <laughs> because, because coming from the seminary background, to have an African-American in a position of power like that, no, no, that does not happen. So I was really happy to see that. But I was walking around, and I felt like I was back in the seminary again. Math department, I'm the only African-American. I mean, I looked at my students. I see a whole bunch of different cultures. It was a lot of fun to work with. But then when I go to the meetings with the faculty and staff, it's like, where are all the African Americans? There's such a, there's such a, there's not a great number of them. But I can say that from my seminary background, I am so used to working in diverse cultures. I'm used to working where I'm a minority, or I'm used to working in a place where I'm surrounded by all Latinos, for example, when I was in a Hispanic parish, or I'm used to, I actually went to a Chinese-American parish, and so I had to learn a few words in Chinese, too, to work with them. I'm used to working with cultures other than my own, and so because of that, this is actually quite normal for me. And looking out in the crowd, again, you see that they have all these different cultures here. This is what I'm used to. This is how I am used to working. So while I do realize that we do have, like, you know, not a great number of African-American faculty and staff, I do see, though, that we do have a very diverse culture here on campus, and so that's what makes it very comfortable.
So that is my rather short journey to uh, Moraine Valley. All right. With all of that, Professor Bohr is 16 years old. <laughs> <laughs> really, he is quite young. <laughs> um, the first three speakers are actually from um, almost three different generations, uh, from Dr. Crowley to Professor Wynn to uh, Professor Bohr. And uh, I'm hearing some of, the, some of the same themes. You know, some of the same themes are, are there. And, uh, but yet, at the same time, they have uh, different experiences. And uh, we're going to continue on, and we're going to take a uh, listen to Professor Courtney Reese. How y'all doing? Um, well, let me start off and say that my background from theirs was a little bit different. Okay. My family started off with three kids. I'm the middle child, and I always see myself to be the protector. Okay. I was always the one fight for my sister and fight for my big brother. So that's how that started off. Um, through grammar school, it got to a certain point that I was stricken with uh, a life-threatening um, illness, which almost took me out. But the thing that actually helped with that was my mother and father, you know, and my brother and sister, you know. We went to the doctor as a child. You hear a doctor telling you you have 40% chance of living and 60% chance of dying. It don't seem sound good to you when you hear that from the doctor. And then you see your mother and father in the corner crying. It's like, okay, what's going on? How this person got this illness? And the way my illness started, started when I was in eighth grade. And it went from eighth grade to my senior year in high school. So I was always in and out the hospital for five years. Okay. Um, through that process, being in the hospital taught me a lot of things. It taught me how to be patient. Not to take everything too seriously, but take things seriously enough that you can overcome everything. Um, it always to the point that... Um, it let me know what I really wanted out of life and how I was actually going to achieve it. Okay, um, it set me back far as school-wise because um, I had homebound tutors, and the only thing I actually excelled at was actually math and science. I didn't like reading. I just didn't want to pick up a reading book, but I would sit there all day and, and deal with math problems. Math problems I didn't come to solve, so I'll sit there all day. <coughs> Sometimes week at a time, just trying to solve math problems. Um, the first time I actually went to high school was in my senior year, and that was actually six months before I graduated. So, going into where the only thing I saw was doctors, my mother and father, and that was it. Was a big difference going to high school, dealing with a group of people at one time, and at that at that time, you. Reframe yourself from being with all those group of people, and you have to sit there and take your time and get to know all these different people, all these different backgrounds, and how can you actually relate to them? You see, I was always relating to a number of adults. That was it. All in the hospital was number of adults. And the thing is, when I went to high school, how did I relate with people my age? That was the only thing I had to overcome. Um, 
when I graduated, I was at the top of the class in math. Reading, yeah, forget about it. But math, I was at the top. You know, nobody could touch me in math class. I would take an earnest class for, for six months. Who figured? And I was sitting back like, okay, I know that answer. I know that answer. I know that answer. Okay, what else? Okay, before a reading class, you have to be like, okay, I think I just lost myself. You know, but with hard work, I done it. Graduated, and then I went to junior college. I went to Allah Harvey Junior College, and then I went there and. Register, passed the math test, reading. I had to go back to reading because my reading skills was low. So I took reading 100, 101, 102, passed those. But in the process, I had a math teacher. Let me back up for a minute. What I really want to do when I enter it, I have so many different ideas of what I want to take as far as um, what I want to do. I could see myself starting off as robotic engineering. Okay, that's what I want to do. So I had to take all these circuit courses, all these math courses, and I found out that somebody told me um, that's going to be a little bit too long. I'm like, nah, I think I kind of want a job kind of soon um, to help me pay for my classes because my parents helped me pay for my classes, and at that time, you know, not having any background working, coming from the hospital to an environment where you have to work for a living was I had to get into that. And finding a job that actually was suitable for me was totally different. Okay? Because I had no background. I had I never had a job before. I even had, didn't have a part-time job. The only part-time job I had was actually plumbing my father. And I didn't really want to go in people's basement and break up concrete for a living. That was out of the question. Um, so... What I did when I went to Allah Harvey, I applied for a tutoring position and found out that I loved it. Okay, and as far as tutoring, I had another teacher who, every time I registered, he registered me for a calculus class. I can't get rid of this teacher. And it was always his class. But the more I think about it, the more I thanked him for it because he led me on a path of actually becoming a math teacher. Because every time I went to him, I'm like, oh, no, here's that teacher again. He wanted to have to rush me. He didn't want to have to sign off on my paper. So every time I go with him, he changed my course to one of his calculus class. So I ended up taking calculus one, calculus two, calculus three. And I'm saying, like, how many more math classes are there? You know, do you sign up for differential equation? I'm like, um, and then I said, talk with him. said, um, can I get from your math class? He said, no, because you're the best student I have. And it hit me, it's like, when he said that, I said, I am? I said, wow, I'm glad you're getting B's and C's. He said, but guess what? You're constant. You'll sit there and you will work, work, and work till you get the problem done. And he said, and for some reason, you're very patient with it. So I said, oh, okay. Then once I did that, and then, you know, I went to Chicago State. <coughs> I applied for Chicago State. Ah, I'm getting tongue-tied now. I applied for Chicago State, got in, got with the wrong people, partying, you know, because I never went to a party before. Partying, it was, at that time, Chicago State was nothing but a party campus. And every Friday was a party, 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 party. You know, until I looked at my grades and they said, oh, guess what? You got kicked out. 
And I was like, oh, that's no joke. How am I going to tell my parents this? And then again, I'm like, well, yeah, that's going to be a hard thing. So I went back to Ola Harvey, got my associate degree, been there so long, I got um, associate in science, had two associate degrees, and I found out, okay, it's time for me to leave. So I went back, applied back to Chicago State, got in, and in the meanwhile, I applied to Chicago Public Schools. Okay, got in as a teacher's aide, teaching math, part-time. Okay, then once I entered Chicago State, I find out what I really want to do. Go to robotic engineering. Okay. I tried again. Got that light. Okay, a little too long. Changed major to architectural engineering. Okay, love to draw. Now, like, okay, that's a little bit too long. And then I sat there and I thought about it. Both of these include what? Math. So I said, okay, I just get a degree in math and computer science. That's the one thing I'm good at. So, in the process, I got my bachelor's degree and then. The public school that was at, I was in a framework of everybody there actually had a master's. That actually wanted me to go further and get my master's and actually teach. In the process, I worked from a parent to a teacher's aide, and then when I got my bachelor's, I was actually going for a regional math instructor. Okay? Now, that was a big thing with Chicago Public Schools. And then it come down to they canceled the program. And I was like, I have my interviews, I know I'm going to get hired, and it's like, guess what? It's gone. So they taught me that wherever I go at, I want to make sure that I'm going to be there for a while. I won't have no program just starting and then it take it away from me. And then in the public, Chicago Public Schools, they taught changing everything, which also leads me to believe that I can't stay here for long. Okay? They start giving the principal more power to actually, if you have disagreement with the principal, say you might have a bad day. You come in, argue with the principal, say it was just a day, apologize, guess what? You got a pink slip in your box the next day, say guess what? The end of the semester, you're fired. That's too much power for a principal when they don't like you. Or if you don't get along with the principal. In that time, I had a very good principal at the time. She retired and we had another principal. And the thing I had with that was they were sending people down from the region that never taught class. So my thing is, how can you tell me to teach a class and you not talk, never actually been in the classroom yourself? So that told me that I need to change. So when I got my master's, in the process of getting my master's, I worked. You, you wouldn't believe I worked my butt off. Um, I was going to school during the day and at night. I was actually doing tutoring for Ola Harvey. I was still teaching full time with Chicago Public Schools. On weekends, I was tutoring people. I was on the north side, south side, driving, just tutoring people for extra money. Um, I was teaching martial arts class, doing martial arts on the side, getting paid from that. So my day was like I was working 100 hours a week easy just making a living and then a friend told me that on my way of graduating from with my masters a friend told me I applied to all these schools I hit them I said why don't you apply for Murray Valley I'm like 
Who is Moraine Valley? Like, what is Moraine Valley? Where is that? I never heard of it before. It was like, here, yeah, he sent me the email. I'm like, okay, cool. I applied for it. Within two weeks, I got a call. Said, you're going to have a phone interview. I'm looking like, huh? Remember, I'm still working 100 hours a week. So I'm burnt out, tired, and I'm going to have a phone interview. So for some reason, I took that day off. Sat back, slept. Got up five minutes before the, <laughs> they called me. And I was still dizzy. I was like, oh, what is, hello? And you know, it's like, okay. They told me who they were. So I was like, okay, how y'all doing? You know, they asked me questions. I'm sitting here like, okay, I hope I answer them right. You know, I'm sitting here like, okay. I'm leaning back on the couch. I got the TV off. I sent the dog into the other room. And I'm sitting here like, okay, I'm concentrating. I'm like, huh, okay. I hope I'm answering this right. And I answer them. It's like, okay. And you can know, you can hear them talking in the background. You know, I'm sitting here like, uh-oh, I think I answered the question wrong. <laughs> you know, not knowing that, you know, at the time I didn't know. It was just like, okay. I was like, when I hung up, I was like, oh, okay, it didn't work out. I didn't get it. That's the first time I ever had a phone interview. So, you know, and then, you know, usually you have an interview one-on-one. Never with a whole group of people. And then they all ask you questions, and then you hear them giggling in the background, and you know talking. And I'm saying like it didn't go well. And then I think at the end of the day, they called me back and said they want me to come in for an actual demonstration. I was like, yes, you know. Um, came in for they sent me the packet and everything. Told me where the school was at. I was like, oh, that's where the school is at. Okay. I, okay, I can get that. That's no problem. You know, come in and say, oh, this is easy. I'm going to get a packet. So, okay. You know, write my lesson plan out. Say, okay, this is what I'm going to teach them. I have all this in front of me. Come in for the demonstration. I lost all my paperwork. I think because I was nervous and I misplaced it. So, the thing is, they said, okay, you have 30 minutes to do this. And then you have 15 minutes of this. And you know, you in there with the dean, the chairperson, the assistant chair, and another person. You're just like, okay, I'm nervous. I'm shaking. Like, okay. And I asked the question. Said, uh, can I treat y'all like kids? He said, whatever make you feel better. I said, okay. So I started looking at the top of the head. That's all I saw. And once I got into the teaching part, it all just came back to me like that. I need no paper. I had to start off. I think that's what's impressive because I didn't have to look at the paper. I had everything actually memorized. So I'm just going along and the thing they want me to teach, I actually changed it. I changed it to this. I said, well, instead of using this, this is another way you could do it. And I started showing two or three examples. They said, got in the middle of the second problem. They said, that time. I'm like, I didn't finish it. That's all the time you got. I was like, oh man, I just blew on that part. So when they start asking me questions, I sat down and asked me little questions. I was like, oh, my God, I think I need a dictionary. You know, that was just me, you know. Because I learned coming through any word I don't know, I'd whip out a dictionary, learn it, and it's in my memory now. But at the time, like, I think because I was nervous, I didn't recognize nothing they were saying. I just, I just, just going by. It was just coming out. 
you know. And then when I left there, they said, go down there, do your paperwork. I said, okay, did my paperwork, put the application in, gave my gave my transcripts and stuff. Left, they said, call me back a week later. Mr. Reese, you got hired. We want you to come back in. I was like, yes. I think I did flips. Okay. And that actually started me in my road to Marine Valley. Then when I got here, everybody was nice. This is actually... But coming from Chicago Public School, you was in the um, all-black community. All-black students and everybody, you know, was one group. When I got here, even though it wasn't big transformation for me, I just went back to being myself, you know, um, just being me. You know, which my students would say, oh, we love Mr. Reese. You know, he just being himself. Even though I try to crack jokes with them, my jokes don't work. You know, you know, but you know, and come to find out, I love it here. I love math. I don't have nobody looking on my shoulders, telling me what I can do. I have my own teaching style, the way I teach the kids. I improve my teaching style every year. You know, it just it works for me. All right, let's get up and press the raise. I have some interesting questions I want to ask the panel. Um, after we get um, Professor Campbell, uh, so hold tight. We have some, I want I want to dig deep into some some social issues and, and and hear what these gentlemen have to say about it. But uh, before we get to that, we're gonna have um, the, you know this 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 guy's uh, departmental chair, uh, Dr. Campbell, oh, Professor Campbell. Sorry about that. And uh, he's gonna tell us a little bit about his background. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Um, my name is not Dr. Campbell. Maybe one day, but right now it's just Professor Campbell. Um, I grew up in Forest City, Arkansas. Forest City, that's a small farming town. And I worked on a farm probably first uh, 13 years of my life. And it wasn't a farm that I owned. It wasn't a farm that my family owned. It was a sharecropping farm. Sharecroppers are people... Uh, black people who work for uh, plantation owners. So uh, now the question is, did I chop cotton? Yes, I did. <laughs> did I pick cotton? Yes, I did. <laughs> so now you understand what sharecropping means. Now, uh, I started school in the second grade. Now, my father died. He passed away. He, was, uh, he had some disease. I don't remember him very well. He, he died when I was... Uh, 15 months old, so I don't remember him at all. So, so my mother was a single mother raising a family, and there were seven of us. So she did a great job, and I commend her for that. And um, uh, I started school in second grade, not because I was smart, because I went to a segregated school, and the system was not so well organized. I went to the second grade room by mistake, and they never caught on. <laughs> <laughs> I'm serious. <laughs> I guess I was of average intelligence, so I managed to start to learn what was taking place and eventually learned enough to progress to the next grade. But by the sixth grade, one of the teachers realized that uh, we can't find your first grade record. And uh, I didn't want to bring the issue up at that point. I'm ready to leave. You know, I'm doing well in school. I've learned things I should know, and I'm ready to graduate. And uh, I didn't tell the truth. 
She said, where'd you go to first grade? I said, I went to first grade in some other town. Now, that was practically impossible. Sharecroppers didn't go anywhere but to the farm and back, back home and back to school. So she knew that was not true. And finally, she kept pressuring me and kept pressuring me. I never admitted it. But she knew that there was no first grade record. And uh, because I was able, because I knew enough information to progress to the next grade, I was able to graduate. So I went on to middle, to uh, junior high school. It was called junior high school. Now, all these schools were segregated by race. Uh, I'm assuming it was a state law, certainly a local law. So it's similar to Dr. Crawley's experience. They were all segregated by race. And the idea was it was um, fair, uh, equal, uh, separate and unequal, uh, separate and equal. I'm thinking unequal because it was unequal, but the, the, the law was separate and equal education, which was not true at all. But uh, uh, I did well in, in school. I did well. And I moved to Chicago when I was 13. Now, that was very traumatic. I came to the west side of Chicago at the age of 13. Now, I didn't know that people actually killed each other because they didn't like them for whatever reason. Now, I knew in Arkansas, if you were, uh, you managed to find yourself in the wrong situation. From stories my, my mother told me, nothing I witnessed personally, that uh, you could be hung or uh, disposed of with no repercussions. But I never witnessed any of that. That was before my time. I'm sure it still happened. I, I was just never, I never found myself in a situation to, act, to actually witness it. But my mother told me many stories about how uh, she had uh, encountered such experiences. So I'm in uh, 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 Chicago, on the west side of Chicago, going to Carter H. Harrison High School. That's two blocks from the county jail on 26th in California. The school is located on 24th in California. And uh, one thing that the uh, state's attorney said at the time, he drove by the school, and he wrote it in the newspaper that, he doesn't understand how anybody in the school learns anything because every time he drives by, everybody's outside. So who goes to classes? There's so many people outside, they couldn't, couldn't possibly be any students in class. So that's the kind of high school it was. But, uh, and when I got there, I, I had done fairly well in Arkansas. I was a smart student. I was one of those students who uh, teacher would ask to do a problem, and I could go do it before he even gave a lecture. So I thought I was smart. I got to... Uh, Carter H. Harrison High School, and I was placed in basic classes. Now, you had basic, and then essential, and then regular, and then honors. I was in basic classes for the first semester. So they realized that was a mistake after a while. So I went to essential classes. After a year or so, they realized that was a mistake, so I went to regular classes. I never got a chance to advance to the honor classes, but I made it to regular classes after uh, people realized that I didn't belong in the basic and essential classes. But that wasn't the hardest part of high school. The hardest part was just getting to school and getting back home alive. Mm -hmm. The neighborhood was so treacherous and devastating that just walking to school, I had to walk. It was a few blocks, uh, maybe a mile or so, that uh, I encountered so many different groups of uh, gangs, quote-unquote. I guess they were considered a little block gang or whatever. And uh, it was it was traumatic just trying to get to school and get back. But I loved school, and I wanted to go. So I found a way to get there and get back. And uh, often I was running back to avoid being caught. <laughs> so it was uh, it was uh, it was an experience that I was not prepared for. But it taught me uh, taught me a lot about survival. And uh, I'm, 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 
I should be grateful to be alive today because there were many opportunities where uh, my demise was could have easily happened. So I, I thank God for that. So uh, I'm in high school and uh, 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 I managed to get through, and it's time to go to college. There's no money. There's no money to go to college. Not one dime. So I told my mother I wanted to go to college. She said, you can't go to college. You don't have any money. I said, well, the counselors at school said you don't have to have any money. So uh, I guess during that time, affirmative action was still legal in uh, <laughs> uh, Grinnell College and Grinnell, Iowa, was interested in diversity for their campus. So they came to the school, some uh, representatives, and talked to a bunch of students about applying to Grinnell College. And... Uh, I didn't think much of it, but the counselors noticed that uh, they had money, and I needed money, and she said, you could probably survive. You should go for it. So I applied to Grinnell College. I was accepted. They gave me 100% scholarship. I could go for free. And I had to borrow money, though, to ride the bus to Grinnell, Iowa, and ride the bus home. So I still had to borrow $300 per semester to get there and get back. So uh, I did that, and uh, they wanted me to do uh, some uh, work study so that it wouldn't look like they were giving me all the money to, uh, to go there. But they said, if you have a hard time, you can uh, have the work study uh, converted over to a loan or some other scholarship. So I started school. <clears throat> now, I'm ill-prepared again. This is the second experience I've had where I'm going to a school from my current school system, and I am not ready for their academics. Cornell College is a... Uh, school that pretty much, I think the population is fairly upper middle class and fairly well educated and Harrison High School was not middle class and not well educated so I was not prepared for the academics it was difficult and uh, uh, I had some trouble with time and uh, my newfound freedom as some college students do <laughs> so uh, I complained to the counselor that uh, I didn't have enough time to study. So they said, okay, forget the work study. We'll just convert it over to a scholarship or uh, a loan. So I think they split the difference and said, no more work study. You just get to study and go to school. That's all you have to do. They forgot the party part that I added on to the end. So uh, now, I'm, now I can focus on school without having to worry about working. And that was great. But I still didn't quite have the discipline and uh, uh, support, academic support from my previous institution education to succeed. So I went to the tutoring center, like students should when they need help, and this uh, woman, Mrs. Klockfelter, she was uh, one of the uh, instructor's wives, and she worked in the tutoring center for fun. It was volunteer work for her. She didn't need the money. She was just bored at home. So she worked in the tutoring center, and uh, I went in with some, with some papers, and she read my paper because it was terrible. I couldn't write at all. She read the paper and said, this is terrible. You can't write at all. So I said, okay. She said, uh, did you read the book? I said, I read some of it. Those are the same answers I get from some students I have uh, today. <laughs> and that, what that really means is, well, I looked at it, but I didn't really read much. So she said, okay, you have to read the book first. So we read the book, and we read it together. So she, uh, she really adopted me as uh, her, uh, her project, and I needed somebody to adopt me. Uh, otherwise, I would not have succeeded. So uh, I met with her on a regular basis two, three times a week. It started out as once or twice a week, then it went to two or three times a week. She read every paper that I turned in. I had to rewrite it five or six times before she was satisfied. 
Pretty soon, I started to be able to write on my own. Pretty soon, uh, reading was more fun and pleasurable, and I started to succeed. But uh, there was still a deficit in credit hours. This, this happened over a couple-year period, and she was pretty much my tutor for the first three years. The last year, I didn't, uh, I didn't need her. But I, I, I didn't earn enough credits to graduate. So after four years, when my academic scholarship was exhausted, I couldn't graduate because I didn't have enough credits. And uh, there was no money left to uh, send me for a fifth year. So it wasn't the same as having your parents pay where they, they just say they don't like, they, they, they regret that you wasted my money, but here's another uh, tuition payment so you can go one more semester and graduate. So I left school, and I was a chemistry major. Uh, is, there, is there a thing with all black men wanting to be doctors or something? What is that? There's three of us up here that said they wanted to be doctors, and I'm one of them. So uh, I majored in chemistry, though, because I like chemistry. And uh, what, I like, what I like most about chemistry was that you, when you mix two liquids together and get a precipitate, a solid, that was magic to me. And I wanted to know, what is this magic? How can you get a solid from two liquids? That's impossible. But a lot of things are possible with chemistry. <laughs> so anyway, uh, I was hooked on chemistry, so medicine was pretty much out the window. I wanted to be a chemist. So, uh, but I left Grinnell without a degree. But I was pretty well educated when it came to chemistry and uh, a well-rounded uh, 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 education. So I started in the workforce working as a, 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 a technician because I didn't have a chemistry degree, but I was a well-educated technician. And was that a rude awakening? Was that an experience I did not expect? I would get a job, work as a technician. I knew what I was doing. I don't know why the people who I worked for didn't appreciate having a well-qualified technician work for them. Maybe they felt their job was threatened, that a, a lower-paid individual could do the same job. So their job was threatened. But I encountered so much uh, sabotage. It was outrageous. I had never heard of a, person, a place where you work and uh, the boss would sabotage your work so that you wouldn't look well, so that, so that you'd get fired. And uh, the first thing, the first, first you wouldn't notice it right away. You, you, know, you, do, you, you, you do some analysis, run some results, get some good numbers, then you come back and everything's different. So it took me a while to catch on what was taking place, but there, there was a, quite a bit of sabotage. I guess it was that time in uh, history where uh, they could get away with it without any repercussions. So, you know, I found myself in the HR office complaining about my, my uh, uh, work being sabotaged. Sometimes they made the difference, sometimes they didn't. But I realized that um, I needed to find a place to work where that wasn't the case. So I would change jobs. I would change jobs in a heartbeat, looking for a place that was decent. And at the same time, I realized I needed to finish my education because I could never be a chemist if I didn't get my degree. So I went back to school part-time. Now, part-time meaning that wasn't my goal to go to school. My goal was to survive. Uh, I needed to make money to live. So the job came first, school came second. So I went to school part-time, took a class or two here and there. Finally, I found uh, Northeastern Illinois University in, uh, in Chicago, 5500 North St. Louis in Chicago. And they accepted all my previous credits from school, and uh, I was able to graduate from there with my uh, degree. It was a BOGBA degree, a Board of Governors Master of Arts. But I also had a chemistry major at the same time, but the primary degree was BOG, a program instituted for uh, students who had gotten uh, credits from a, a number of colleges, and they could all be consolidated to count towards one degree with no time limit. So I finally got my degree. I'm, I'm still, now I can work as a chemist. I have a bachelor's, so I get a job. And uh, uh, so working as a chemist instead of working as a technician, so because I had no problem changing jobs, that was no no big deal to me. 
So I uh, changed jobs, working as a chemist, and then I realized I wanted more. I could do more. So I went back to school and got a master's degree from Governor State and changed jobs again to get more money and found the perfect boss. I couldn't believe it. This guy, I worked for a boss who was in Richmond, Virginia, and I was in Chicago at a plant, and I was his eyes and ears. He was a research and development, and uh, I, uh, he would call me and say he needs some results. I would get them for him. One time he wanted some results. He needed them right away for a meeting the next day. I had to stay there and work 24 hours to get these results. Now, he had no idea that I was working on this. He thought I went home, and he gave up. He said, well, he'll go to the meeting, and that's it. You know, he won't have his data, and that's how life goes. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. So finally, I realized I, I didn't know what hotel he was in, so I had to call the travel agent, find out what hotel he was in, call the hotel, find out what room he was in. I said, don't wake him up because he's asleep. So I got the fax number, faxed the information to him at 6 in the morning. I said, I gotta get, you got to get it to him because he'll leave. He'll wake up, take a shower, and leave and miss it. He won't stop at the front desk. So I got the, the guy to slip it under the door so that when he wakes up, he can't leave the door without getting this information. When he got it, he said it was so timely. He went to the meeting. He was the star of the show, and he loved it. From that point on, I had a good boss. I got the biggest raises. <laughs> I got the most preferential treatment, and it was perfect. I said, I'm never leaving this company. I got the best boss in the world. So finally, the uh, company got bought out the way companies do. A uh, merger took place, and my boss went to risk, went to uh, Cranberry, New Jersey, and he wanted, he wanted to take me, but the plant manager wanted me to stay at the plant. And uh, uh, my boss lost the battle, so I got stuck at the plant. But I liked the plant manager. He didn't like me. I didn't like him. So I had a service package. I quit. I took my service package and left and worked at another company. I realized now I don't want to. I don't want to do this company hopping anymore. I need. I want. Some, I want to do something I want to do. I wanted to teach. I've always wanted to teach. I've always enjoyed helping people learn. And uh, I said, this is my chance. If I don't do it now, I'm never going to do it. So I started teaching. I applied for at Marine Valley to work at. They had a job opening. I applied. Never heard a word. I called HR. They said, uh, well, if you didn't hear anything, that means we didn't select you. I said, okay. Well, that's the way it goes. So I applied to some other schools, and same thing happened. So uh, I applied a second time. But this time it was the uh, adjunct position. So they had an uh, uh, on-campus uh, workshop. So I came to an on-campus workshop. I got hired. So I was teaching as an adjunct. I loved it, teaching part-time. It was great. Going in that night, it was like the best part of the day. Work all day, and then you come and teach chemistry. It was perfect. Did that for a couple, of, about a year and a half, maybe a year. And I said, this is... Uh, this is not going to work for me. I need to work full-time as a teacher. So I said, well, I can't get into college full-time because there are, there's no, there are no, no positions. So I'm going to uh, 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 teach, teach high school or middle school. So I took the, the, uh, the tests, and uh, Governor State had, had a program where you could uh, go to school one year, or go to school one summer, teach the whole year, and then go to school the second summer and get your teacher certification. So my goal was to teach middle school, middle school science. And before I could get there, this job opened up. I applied here, and I never got a chance to teach middle school science. Now I'm teaching at Moraine Valley. I think I would have enjoyed teaching middle school science just as much. I don't, I don't think it would have made any difference to me where I taught. I wanted to teach, and uh, the fact that I'm teaching here, I'm, I'm grateful and happy. I think this may ultimately have been the best job I could have gotten, but I would have been just as happy teaching middle school science and middle school kids. We would have had so much fun. So uh, um, uh, that's how I ended up at, Mar at Marine Valley, and uh, I've, I've had, uh, I've heard 
uh, that Marine, Marine Valley was not so hospitable to people like me in the past? I don't know what happened or when it happened. That is not true. Marine Valley is very nice to people like me. I love it here. This is my last job. Mr. <laughs> Campbell, thank you very much. Um, I guess I want to ask uh, some questions to the panel. Uh, I guess I gave a little background on, on me. I was, I'll do it real quick. I was born in Minneapolis, moved to Chicago uh, when I was about two years old. Um, south side of Chicago, a uh, little petty crime, got in trouble, seven years of Joliet, uh, found religion, <laughs> Dr. Crowley called me, and then I've been teaching here ever since. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that's great. <laughs> no, actually, I... Um, it's all true. <laughs> it's all true. I went to... Um, I grew up on the south side of Chicago, which is mostly an African-American community, but uh, from grade school to high school, I pretty much had um, mixed uh, classmates as far as uh, racial background is concerned. Um, I went to Western Illinois University and uh, got involved there with uh, a lot of different uh, organizations and so forth. So I've had the opportunity to uh, work with different types of people uh, for most of my life. Uh, I just kind of generalized that because um, I want to tell you, when I got to Moraine in uh, 1994, I was working as an adjunct, and I didn't, these gentlemen wouldn't have been up here with me back in 94. I've seen a lot of changes even since then. Um, there was only uh, one adjunct uh, African-American male that I saw on campus, and, uh, and our president. And so that's all I saw. I, know, I think there was an advisor uh, as well, he re he retired, I think, around 96 or 97. I forget his name. But uh, that was it. I saw no one else. And um, I was actually, I was an adjunct professor at that time. And uh, when I became a full-time professor here uh, at the college, I was the only one in the department for a very, 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 very long time. And so I've had some interesting experiences. Um, being able to adapt to something that was a little easier for me. But some of my colleagues have had a chance, not, um, not the ones that are up here necessarily, uh, had some difficulties uh, making those uh, adjustments. If they didn't have the right type of background uh, where they were used to dealing with different cultures, it was hard to make that change. And I've had that expressed to me a number of times. And so that's something that, you know, uh, is, is unfortunate. But uh, that's why I want to just kind of leads me to the question, uh, enough about me. Um, I want to ask the panel, is your responsibility as an African-American different from your colleagues here at Moraine? Um, is that a, a question that anyone wants to try to grab first? Is your responsibility as an African-American different from your colleagues? Uh, I'll start it out. If you know. I have no problem starting it out. I'll answer. Okay. And in my opinion, no. I think um, our responsibility first and foremost is to teach students, uh, whether you're an African-American or whatever. Um, I think that sometimes... Uh, some of the situations in terms of what we bring with us uh, to teaching sometimes might raise some, some eyebrows in, uh, in terms of some of the things that we do in a classroom, uh, particularly for sociology. Um, I know what I try to do in my class with regard to this teaching thing is not give students my opinion about any of those things because I don't want to bias them in terms of you know, what a 48-year-old African-American thinks, that type of thing. So I, I try to create that sort of uh, critical thinking in the class. So 
No, I, I don't. I don't think there's any difference, in my opinion. What about you, Corey? Um, same there. I don't. I don't think there's. No, I. I agree with that. I don't because I bring me to the classroom. I bring my teacher's child to the classroom. You know, and that's what I offer the students. Like, like I said, first thing foremost is to the students. I bring me to the classroom. I bring my child to the classroom. And I don't care who's in the classroom. It's my obligation to teach the students that's in that class. I do feel some obligation. I'm sorry. I do. Um, as an African-American male, I mean, I heard uh, Dr. Crawley talk about how someone kind of helped guide him. Um, I heard how um, Professor Wynn said that someone... No, it was Professor Reese, I'm sorry, said that someone kind of took him under his wings. And I, and I see uh, young African-American men, especially on this campus, uh, I'm actually kind of disappointed I don't see more young African-American men here. The, the mentoring process is an extremely important part. And I think, and even Mario said when he came here and he saw Dr. Crawley, that kind of gave him a comfortable feeling. Yeah. And I think uh, being on campus, it, it is my obligation to try to reach out. Um, there's a difficulty trying to reach out sometimes because sometimes when you have taken the path, um, young African-American men may not see that they can connect with you for whatever reason. They may feel that you don't understand the black experience and all of that, and that becomes a difficult process sometimes. But I've got to still try to reach out. Um, the men's basketball coach, I coach women's basketball here too, was a former student of mine, and he thought I was a Uncle Tom. You know, and I don't know if you guys know what that is, but uh, there's somebody that's sold out from um, the black community. And I feel that that was unfortunate. And I, I don't know what I did because I'm, I'm, I know me and I'm not an Uncle Tom. I can tell you that right now. But I must have done something. And I want to be able to connect to these students, and I work real hard. And that's why I kind of like coaching uh, basketball, because I do see a lot of the young African-American men there. That's my connection to them. And I talk to them, whether they hear me or not, it's another story, whether they feel they can connect to me or not, it's another story. Um, but and with African-American women as well. And I do feel an obligation to teach all my students. That's not where I'm going, but I take something outside of teaching, and I feel I need to step out and try to reach out because there are young men just like these men here that need mentoring. They need to see somebody that's that's positive and has some ideas of how to be successful. So, well, our time is almost up, but I would like to get your last statement. And I do agree with Doug, and I feel a responsibility too. But one of the most, and I think I've been called Uncle Tom, but my name is not Tom, and I am an uncle though. But uh, uh, Uncle Tom is uh, an unfortunate uh, 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 term to use, and uh, it probably signifies a situation where uh, African uh, uh, black people in this country have not embraced their opportunity to uh, benefit from the diversity that this country holds. And uh, looking back at, at Grinnell College, when I went to Grinnell College, we had a black table at lunch, two black tables actually, and if you weren't black, you didn't sit there. Even though people would try, they would just be mean to them and run them away. And the black people who chose to sit someplace else, they couldn't sit someplace else because they would be ostracized later on. And uh, I feel pressured to sit at this black table. And today, I resent the fact that uh, the black students at the Institute at Grinnell College didn't take advantage of an opportunity to embrace diversity, learn about learn about other cultures, and not um, uh, uh, force not not self enforce isolation. This country. 
legally enforced isolation on us at one point in, in history. But now this country has changed significantly, and this isolation is no longer necessary. So I don't want a, uh, a self-enforced isolation on myself. So that's one thing that I would hope that uh, 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 black students would uh, embrace. Diversity is for everybody, including us. We're not just being in, put into some other situation to help other people learn about diversity. We should also uh, embrace diversity for our own benefit. In, in, to answer your question, I come from a little different background here for all of that. But um, of course, if we come into, I let me tell you this: I worked in all white institutions, all white institutions. I worked in the predominantly black institutions. I worked in the uh, integrated institutions. So I've been across all three of them in the sense of that, and. Uh, you know, when you go into an institution, I think the number one thing is to do your job. You know, whatever it is, if it's teaching, it's to teach in the classroom and be the best teacher that you can. If I'm the college president, I ought to do the job to the best of my ability and do that. But I do think we have some responsibility, though, from my perspective, to be role models for people. Um, uh, role models for our students. And in my case, not only for the students, for the faculty, for the staff, for our community, it's that image that you want, you know, in the sense of all of that for the institution. So I do think we have some responsibilities. And uh, just to jump on that as well, in my experience in the seminary, I can say the same thing. That I've worked in all white parishes, I've worked in all black parishes, and like I said, I've worked in Chinese American parishes, Hispanic, and so on. So. Um, I agree, but I would also emphasize a point that uh, we have a panel here of, what, five African-American gentlemen, and we all come from different backgrounds. We all have different stories, and I think the point, though, is that all of us are African-Americans. When people see us, all of us will see us as African-Americans, but I think our responsibility to our students and even to our colleagues and our uh, Everyone here on campus is just to show that the quote term African American is not like a cookie cutter. That you know we're not all exactly the same, and so I think that's our responsibility to show that. Yes, for example, I like math. You may not like math, but you can still do it. Uh, Dana, uh, Dr. Crawley, chemistry, like to hear the mathematics. Courtney, mathematics. Delwin, communications and sociology with uh, Professor. Uh, with Ellen. It's the same thing. It's exactly the same thing that we are all African American, but we're all different. And so I think that's what we have to show, that it's not just one stereotype. How can we connect? Um, I know, Joe, we got to close out. Uh, can I, I also want to ask one last question, because um, if we do uh, have some obligation, how can we connect to uh, young men who perhaps uh, find us to be Different. When I when I saw Dr. Crowley, I was like, you know, it's not just it just the way he carried himself. He was somebody that you know made me feel more comfortable because I didn't see a lot of African American men here on campus. But um, I had a different experience. A lot of these young men don't have that same experience, and they may see um, all of us in a different light and not be able to connect with us. How do we do that? How do how do we connect with those young men? Is that something that uh, someone can answer? I'd like to do. I'd like to do that. I, I think what what Mario mentioned with regard to we all have different we have different experiences, we have different focuses, that type of thing, et cetera, et cetera. 
I think that it is important to reach out not only to African-American students but to all students. And I think sometimes in, in some situations there are some African-American students just like any other students that I can connect with and I can mentor. And I think in some situations the students that I can't connect with, I'm hoping that one of us up here can. So I think with that kind of keeping that in mind, I think there is some degree of catchment in terms of if not me, in terms of reaching a great number of individuals uh, who need help. Maybe Courtney, maybe Mario, maybe yourself. So, The way I was taught was in order to communicate with students, you have to find something you have both have in common, for one thing. In order to communicate with their students, um, not only through just math, but through anything else to help that student get along, to guide that student down the right path. But the thing as far as a teacher, you have to do more reaching out because you get a lot of students that might not want to reach back. But that's the thing. How you reach those students that don't want to reach back, you reach more. And you keep going until you reach that student. You never stop, you know, reaching that student. You know, not only in if, like, there's a lot of students I have that I connect with that goes to other math classes, but they still come back and talk to me. I still walk down the hall and say, how you doing with your math class? If you need any help, my door's always open. You know, if you need any help with reading, talk to me. You know, we could go to another professor, and we could talk to a professor together and, you know, help you with this subject or help with that subject. I never turn the back on any student or anybody, period. That's just, that's just the way I was raised. All right, I see uh, Jerry edging one, up to the... Uh, one point. We must reach out to students, though. You know, we can't allow students to come to us, and we must reach out to them. You know, I think many of the students who come in here, African-American or any other students, for that matter of fact, are really afraid to reach in and do some of the things that you normally would think they would do, but we need to reach out to them and pull them in and get them involved. I agree. And I guess uh, Troy Swanson is tipping over here. We're going to come to a close. I hope you guys um, appreciated getting the chance to hear um, stories from six men on this campus. They were uh, varied stories, uh, different and unique, each one. And we're all different, but we uh, all love students. And uh, we hope you guys enjoyed our presentation. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library.